So good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again in this way. Um, here on the second Sunday, second weekend of May with um, snow in the air. Uh, how odd is that? <laughs> Fits right in with this odd time that we're going through. So Lucas and I have been reading through the Bible in opposite directions. Over the past month, he's brought couple of messages from the New Testament while I've been reading my way backward through the Old Testament. And two weeks ago, I was immersed in the prophets, and that informed the message that I brought this past week. I've been um, working my way through what are known as the writings, reading Job, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. Remember, I said I'm reading backward. And finally, uh, just finished First and Second Chronicles. And I plan to bring a message today um, as I was reading through First and Second Chronicles, plan to bring a message from Chronicles. And, and then I remembered, uh, this is Mother's Day. And somehow the books of the Chronicles just didn't feel quite appropriate to a Mother's Day message. So happy Mother's Day to all you moms and grandmas and great grandmas. We love you all. Uh, normally, Mother's Day, we have a great big vase of carnations in front of the congregation and distribute them to all the moms as a way of uh, expressing our appreciation. So hopefully someone out there gives you a carnation today or does something special for you on Mother's Day. This is a special Mother's Day for me because it happens to be my mother's birthday. She would have been 95 years old today. She left us five years ago this summer. But it's a special Mother's Day because just like in 1925, the 10th of May fell on Sunday. Mother's Day was first observed in 1908 and then made official on the second Sunday of May in 1914. And just 11 years later, that date happened to be the 10th of May on that Sunday, and that's the day my mom was born. I'm among those who can say that my mother was born on Mother's Day. And that gives me an opportunity, it gives me an opportunity to think about the many ways that I've been so richly blessed and continue to be so richly blessed. And it adds an extra depth for me to some of the verses that I'd like to look at, some of the things that I'd like us to think about today. I hope that you can find a way today to tell your mother whether she's living this earthly life still or living the life that is to come, that you appreciate her, that you love her. If she paid the price for you at your birth, so it's an appropriate time to consider that you live at a cost. And that's why I entitled this meditation, At What Cost? At what cost do we live both our physical lives and our life of faith. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, 6 
through 17, which um, is my primary text for the morning. And as we read through this, you might say to yourself, I'm sorry, I'm at the back of the There we go. It was at the back of the PowerPoint. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 17. As we read through this, you might say, where in the world, how did you come up with this as a Mother's Day text? But hang in there with me. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in time. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have, be, you have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally test treated. We are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. First thing I'd like for us to notice, I'm going to back up to the beginning. First thing I'd like for us to notice, having read through this, is the way Paul addresses his target audience in the Corinthian church. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. What things is he talking about? Paul is writing this letter to a church that is, is being torn apart, literally torn apart by factions as people identified with different leaders. In the opening chapter of the letter, in the opening lines of the letter, he takes them to task because, in his words, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Peter, and yet another, I follow Christ. The church, here's the church in its infancy. 
in the very first decades of the existence of the church. And already we see the roots of denominationalism and division. Paul puts a great deal of his effort, both in this letter and in his letter to, in his letter of Romans and Galatians, he puts a great deal of effort into leveling the playing field into an equality where, again, in his words, one plants, another waters, but it is God who gives the increase or who gives the growth. And he actually asks the question, who is Paul and who, who is Apollos, after all, but fellow laborers together in the kingdom? And here he asks the Corinthians, what or who makes you different than anyone else? His use of the term brothers in this approach, in his approach, denotes a sense of family, a sense of identity, of equality, of unity in the face of their petty differences. And then he goes on to use some pretty sarcastic sounding language as he challenges their attitudes. He talks about them being puffed up, you know, and he then he goes on to this type of language. Oh, you've already become rich. You've already begun to reign. Um, we're fools, but you're so wise. We're weak, but you're so strong. And all of this, you know, this has a very sarcastic feel to it because he's really challenging their, their uh, attitudes that have developed. Later on in the chapter that's beyond this text, he talks about how some have become arrogant. Um, and he gets pretty strident with them. But as we move through the text and we come to verse 14, he makes a significant switch in verse 14. When he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you have 10,000, even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So we stay with the metaphor of family. He starts out calling them brothers. So we stay with that metaphor of family identity, but suddenly now Paul addresses them from a different plane, not as equals, not as siblings, not as brothers, but from a perspective of parent. And he even makes the distinction between his role and that of a teacher. Note in verse 15, he says, even if you have 10,000 guardians, um, some other translations say instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And he goes on to say in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. The distinction is between the Greek words pedagogos and pater. The former references an instructor or a tutor, one who gives information, who teaches content, while the latter denotes life-giving shared relationship. While it's translated here as father, it can be more broadly refer, it can more broadly refer to either father or mother in general, a parent. And in fact, Paul does just exactly that by going on to say in the King James, where it says in NIV, I have become your father through the gospel. In King James, this is how it reads. For ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you 
through the gospel. So literally in the Greek, Paul is saying, and this is how it would read, this is the meaning of the words, I have given you birth. That's a rather motherly expression, don't you think? I have given you birth. So even though the word is translated father in this case, it really is speaking in a broad sense, and it has a motherly kind of tone. This is not... <clears throat> this is not the only place that we find Paul using this kind of language as he writes to another conflicted church in Galatia. He says almost the exact same thing in Galatians 4.19 when he writes and says, I'm sorry, when he writes and says to them, my dear children, for whom, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He goes on to say, oh, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Um, and again, to the Galatians, <clears throat> Paul is writing to a church that is really in some pretty troubled water. They're being pressured from leaders from various perspectives being pushed and Paul at one point just seems to boil over with frustration saying, oh, you foolish Galatians, you know, who is, who's tricked you into believing some of these things that take you backward, not forward in a sense. <clears throat> Leading up to this exclamation where he writes about, you know, being a, again in the pains of childbirth, uh, Paul writes just a bit about the struggles that he went through to serve the Galatians, to bring them the gospel as he does elsewhere in his letters. In Romans 12, um, in the scripture that we just looked at from 1 Corinthians 4, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives a whole litany, a whole list of the, of the trials that he's faced and the things that he's been, to, been through in his, in his life of bringing the gospels to the, to the various communities that he served. Um, and he, in this case, refers to all that suffering, to all those trials, he refers to that as the pains of childbirth. Now, as far as we know, <clears throat> Paul was never married. Paul was not a physical parent, even though in the verse that I just uh, skipped over, let me go back to it, um, <clears throat> he, he does this. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So he refers a number of times in his letters to Timothy who, as a son, but Timothy wasn't his physical son. Timothy was a spiritual son for sure, um, and a faithful fellow worker with Paul, someone that he expresses a, a deep, deep love for. But as far as we know, Paul was not married. Paul had no physical, he had no physical children. He was not a father in, a, in the physical sense. So exactly what perspective um, he has to the pains of childbirth that he references here, uh, we don't know quite where that comes from. Paul does, a, I think, a fairly dangerous thing in writing this <clears throat> as if he understands childbirth because I can't relate. I am a father, but I can't relate to the pains of childbirth, and neither can any of the rest of you guys out there. 
So let's not pretend that we understand what that's like. What I'm told is that it is all encompassing and it becomes a singular focus. The process of giving birth is a process that leads to a moment where nothing else matters. Nothing else can make, break through. The only thing, and there is the only thing in that moment, the only thing is let's get this child out of here. Um, that, uh, that's something that's unique, I think, to that kind of pain, that kind of struggle, is it is all-encompassing. It becomes the only thing. And maybe a little personal story can illustrate that a bit. My daughter, Flora, my oldest daughter, Flora, was born, well, both of my daughters were born while I was a student at Eastern Mennonite College in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And um, our doctor was Dr. Charles Hertzler, who we moved to the Harrisonburg community, which is a pretty heavily populated Mennonite community. We met Dr. Hertzler <clears throat> at, our, at the congregation where we worshiped. He went to church with us. I got to know him a little bit as a Sunday school teacher. But I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time with him <clears throat> until we showed up at the hospital with um, my wife well along in labor pains. And we got settled into the hospital and <clears throat> Dr. Hertzler came in, did his quick assessment and said, uh, well, you're making progress, but you've got a ways to go. And then he um, proceeded to make himself comfortable on the other side of the bed. I was sitting on a stool on one side of the bed. The doctor was on the other. Now, my great-grandmother on my father's side, one of my great-grandmothers on my father's side is a Hertzler. And so the doc and I <clears throat> proceeded to play the Mennonite game, you know, who you down from, um, making the connections that uh, we, we realized in fairly short order that we were distantly related, that, you know, we go back in that Hertzler, Hertzler family history, drawing the lines of how that, uh, that family that had its start in, in uh, <clears throat> southeastern Pennsylvania and the the Mennonite, uh, uh, Mennonites coming to, Amish Mennonites coming to southeastern Pennsylvania back in the 1700s. And we get into this animated and deep discussion about this back and forth and back and forth. <clears throat> While my wife is laying in the bed in the pains of childbirth, you know, every, every five minutes or so, the labor pains would hit her. And in the meantime, we're having this discussion. And after one particularly uh, hard contraction had eased up, <clears throat> she looked at us and said, why don't you guys just get out of here? <laughs> um, it was real clear that the things that we were concentrating on and talking about had absolutely no meaningful connection with her and what was going on with her at all. Um, she was singularly focused. There was one thing happening and one thing only. And now is not the time to talk about whose great-great-grandmother was connected to who else's great-grandmother. It was just, uh, that was just real clear. Nothing else could be more important to a mom than the process of bringing that child to life. 
And that's the price. That's the cost our moms are willing to pay for us to be, to live. So what do you have? It reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthians when he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Why do you act as if you didn't? And so that makes me stop and think. Why and how can I act as if this life is something that I was not given at a price, that I was not given at a cost? And so that's how I come to that title of at what cost, not just my physical life, but my spiritual life, my life of faith as well. You know, what cost, what, what struggle, what pain did people go through to lead to the life that I now enjoy and the blessings that I now have. And it isn't just the cost paid in the pains of childbirth that a mother pays. When I think about all that I put my dear mother through in all the years of growing up and all my years of growing up, oh my, I can only hope that the few years of my caring for her in her old age up until the time of her death could be a partial installment for the debt that I owe. I have two short stories from my life about a decade apart, about 10 years between the two, two short stories that sort of illustrate um, the wisdom of my mother uh, and, and and how blessed I was. And the first is probably at about the age of nine. I don't remember the exact age that I would have been, but at about the age of nine and about at that, back at that phase and that point in time in my life, I'm almost embarrassed to look back and think about the kind of kid that I was because there I was lost, you know, kind of stuck in the middle of a sibling group of eight children um, right there at number four, and I just had this attitude of, you know, just feeling that I was always on the short end of the stick. I was always overlooked. I wasn't as big or I wasn't as strong as my older brothers. Um, I had a couple younger siblings, my, my youngest sister, younger sisters that were developmentally disabled. Uh, actually, at that point in my life, when I was eight or nine, uh, my youngest sister had, had just been born. And so I spent a lot of time thinking like, you know, I was, nobody was paying attention to me and I wasn't getting the attention that I deserved. So I uh, uh, didn't really throw tantrums, but I ran away a lot. We lived out in the country, so if things didn't go quite my way, I would just take off. I would just, you know, go out in the woods or whatever. And my mom never really seemed to be too concerned about that because, you know, she knew I'd be home in time for supper. And uh, so she really didn't. Uh, she really didn't let my little uh, mild tantrums affect her a whole lot. And I don't, I don't recall what happened on this day. It must have just been the kind of thing that where I just felt like she just wasn't giving me attention that I wanted or whatever. But for whatever reason, I, I went out and I, I, I got a length of baler twine or rope and tied it around my neck. And, and she was hanging out laundry in the backyard. And so when she came around the house, she would have to come underneath a pear tree or a peach tree that we had growing beside the well. 
Um, so I knew that she was going to be coming out to hang up laundry. I climbed up in the peach tree, sat on a branch, and, and when she came by, she looked up and said, what are you doing up there? And I said, I'm going to hang myself. And my mother, in her wisdom, just looked at me and said, okay, that's what you feel like you need to do. And she just kept right on going. Hanging out her laundry, left me sitting there on the branch. Now, you might think that that doesn't sound like a very motherly, loving kind of thing for her to say or do. But that had an impact. Because even at that age, you know, it was the kind of thing that stopped me in my tracks, made me think, made me think about the fact that, uh, you know, my perspective maybe wasn't the only perspective. And ultimately, I climbed down off the branch and took the rope off. And just like wandering home from the woods at supper time, I got on with life. I'm so I'm so grateful for my mother for that for that wisdom, for that checking me in the way that she did. The other story, about ten years later, I'm hippying around on the Hopi Indian Reservation in northern Arizona the age of 19. And on a brief trip back down to Phoenix, I called, talked to my mom, and I told her that I had decided <clears throat> that I wanted to come home and get married. My uh, girlfriend and I at the time were communicating back and forth a lot, and it was hard for us to be separated. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I told her, yeah, I'm going to, I, we decided we're going to get married. I'm going to I'm going to come home and get married. And my mom, again, in her in her wisdom, um, God given wisdom, um, she just she said, well, if that's what you're going to do, then you need to get your butt home and get a job. That, too, had a, just a deep wisdom to it. Um, up until then, you know, I had worked a few odd jobs here and there, uh, but I hadn't been real serious about thinking about my life in terms of long term. Uh, even even the thought process about getting married was sort of like, I don't know, it was just not not very well thought out. And it was her response to say, you know, you need to begin adulting. You need to begin doing some things that... Uh, that grown-ups do, and so uh, and so that's what I did. I flew home. I went to work in a factory, and a um, month and a half later, got married at the age of 19. Uh, didn't say that mom's wisdom rubbed off, you know, real effectively, but um, but I've been so blessed, and I'm just so thankful that she was there with her with her wisdom, with her way of of checking me and, and bringing me up short. The, the price that she paid was so much beyond the pain of childbirth. It was the price that she paid in dealing with someone like me at the age of nine, at the age of 19. Um, and as I say, I just, I just hope that the years that I spent with her at the end of her life and the care that I was able to give are a partial payment on that debt.
that's that's my prayer. That's my hope. In closing, I'd, I'd like for us to go back to what the Apostle Paul says and his use of this idea of childbirth as a description of his desire and his focus for the Galatian people and for the Corinthians, for everyone that he worked with, for every church that he ministered to. It's this, this is behind it, that Paul's use of this description of the pangs of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So as we think about the cost, at what cost we live, physically and spiritually, what about us as we relate to our families, our children, our siblings, our in-laws, our cousins, relatives, friends, whoever, do we live with a singular focus to pay whatever price is necessary that Christ would be formed in one another? Remember, it's not just a matter of pedagogy, of giving the right theology, the right information, teaching the proper doctrine. Uh, it's not just about that. You know, they have 10,000 instructors. You can have any number of instructors and people that are, you know, any, any number of sources of information. And that's, that's infinitely more true today than it was for the Apostle Paul. You want to know anything, just Google it. You know, you have just any number of instructors. <clears throat> but it's a matter of being willing to pay the kind of price that enables us to say, in Christ Jesus, I've given you birth. I have begotten you in Christ Jesus. The kind of close, shared, defining, sometimes painful, always costly relationship with one another until Christ is formed in us. May that be so. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, on this special day, when we have opportunity to think about the price that is paid for us to live life, and not just to live life in the flesh, but to live life in the spirit, to have a life of faith, and for the role that our mothers played in that, we are so grateful. We thank you for that. We thank you for the wisdom that, it, that they display. We thank you for the faithfulness for mothers of faith who, who express that and who hold to that and who model that for us. And I pray that as we, as we think about how Paul has used this, that we think about our own lives and think of the ways that we are called to have that singular focus of paying whatever price is necessary so that Christ can be formed in us, so that we can truly become like Christ Jesus, so that we can truly be your children in this, in this life, in this world, in our relationships with one another. Not to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory in Christ Jesus, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And peace to all of you. Take time again to...
<coughs> put the information up here for the church, for those who would want to communicate with us. Um, the address is there, Box 216 Spartansburg, 16434. Um, there's online giving now at this site for uh, tithing. And uh, any prayer requests that you may have, anything you'd like to communicate with us, feel free to do that at this web uh, or at this email address of EVMC Spartansburg at Gmail. And as always, feel free to call me if there's need to do that. My number is here on the screen. I want to just uh, again express thankfulness for those who gather in a Zoom Bible study meeting on Wednesdays. Uh, for those who gather in a, a Zoom fellowship following our messages on Sunday morning, uh, it's good to be with you all in those kind of settings. And I um, express my gratitude to Lucas for setting that up and keeping that going. Um, and over the course of the next several weeks, as we um, entertain the idea of coming back together in corporate worship in some fashion, we will uh, we'll be sure to keep you informed on, on that as well. Uh, but until then, we'll continue this format for our messages and, uh, and our times together. And we just pray that the Lord is with you and that everything is going well and that you are well physically and in every way. Um, thank you all. I stopped it. <laughs> you may have to edit it if I didn't stop it. I just put stop video. Um, it appears to be. Hmm. No.